I struggle to apply the critical trope of difficult third album to The Cure's faith. Uh, this isn't a band that had achieved worldwide success, become celebrities, were being followed around by paparazzi. The Cure were still a very middling indie band with barely any recognition outside of England. After the release of 17 Seconds in April 1980 and a series of long tours around the world, including the United States, The Cure came home to the release of Joy Division's Closer. Robert Smith is on record as saying, that Decades and the Eternal are two of the best songs ever written and that he could never top them. So there's no question that in August of 1980, when they began tentative sessions to start mapping out fate, Robert Smith was very preoccupied with Ian Curtis' suicide in May and the incredible atmospheric power of that album. Unknown Pleasures is, is very much of its time. It's very much a winter of our discontent 1979 post-punk album. But Closer is something totally different. Closer just leaves the plane. It's not terrestrial in any way. It's very strange. The production is so wooden. Funereal is not even, that doesn't even come close to what the Eternal is. It's truly ghastly. If it weren't for the sort of melodrama of the organs in decades, you know, clearly that would be as well. The breakdown in decades, the middle eight, is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And again, it's, you know, it's not fundamentally technically astonishing, but for really Hannett's production, they're using an ARP synthesizer that is, you know, goes out of tune all the time. And all these happy accidents of analog experimentation hugely inform what was captured for Closer. So while there's no doubt that Smith is borrowing from that inspiration, and while it's also completely understandable that as a 21-year-old kid, the, the suicide of this guy who was that many years ahead of you and writing that much more grave, serious truly astonishing music uh, that would weigh on him heavily. Certainly did. Added to that, everyone in The Cure experienced some sort of loss, whether really close to home, as in the case with Lowell Tolhurst, whose mother died of cancer. That really is where the sort of gravity can be found, as relates to Smith and his songwriting. But it's also the fact that they've finally gotten out of England. They've seen the world. And what can often happen is a sense of, wow, it wasn't that big a deal. Suddenly, the world seems so much smaller. And maybe all those fantasies you've had are really the only things that are sustaining you, which is to say you prefer to live in your head. And when you look at all the different literary influences and, and particular stories that Smith was inspired by, he continues to pull from that here. Faith is consistently twinned with the Gormenghast trilogy by Mervyn Peake, an incredibly successful canonical English fantasy series. Uh, it's exceedingly typically gothic. You can say that it's partially Arthurian in places, but when you listen to songs like The Drowning Man, I mean, it's just read from the page.
And this is just a trend that continues with Smith. He's unashamed to sort of take that sensation, that feeling he gets of the sort of perfect fantasy world that's conjured up in the novel and translated into a piece of pop music. So coming off the tour in the fall of 1980, Smith doesn't have a ton written. He's got one song called A Normal Story that he really was never able to get right. That ends up on the uh, the deluxe edition of Faith. You, you get a really strong bevy of bonus tracks on this. The second disc of the deluxe edition of Faith is, is one of the strongest of any of the Cure reissue packages. Uh, there's a number of really strong live cuts there. And these come from one of the earliest compact disc bootlegs ever pressed. I actually had this bootleg. It's called Arabian Dreams. It was pressed in 1987 on CD. It leads off with the Chestnut Studio demo, Boys Don't Cry, from 1978. That, that ends up on most sort of Cure bootlegs legs um, in the early days because it's one of the only tracks that was really floating around. It also features Descent, which was the B-side of Primary, the only single from Faith. Descent is a another of these sort of moody, atmospheric pieces, a lot of which weren't really resolved. Descent stayed a two-bass instrumental, you know, extremely minimal, almost underdeveloped in that way. And then, you know, building on that, you had this infamous half an hour piece called Carnage Visors. In the early 80s, pretty much everybody working in experimental or, you know, let's say self-directed pop, they're going to have something of an Eno moment. And Carnage Visors is Robert Smith's Brian Eno moment. What really changes everything for The Cure on Faith, and especially on Carnage Visors, for the next eight years, the majority of The Cure's studio sound is defined by a single instrument, the Fender Bass 6. I believe the Bass 6 debuted in 1963, and it was intended to give, like, surf music more attack because it uses a lower gauge of strings. So this is sort of in between a bass and a guitar. Smith in 17 seconds is trying to achieve what a lot of people would call the teardrop guitar sound. That's one of the reasons he stuck with the Fender Jazzmaster is it gives you so much attack on individual notes. And that sustain that you get from the Jazzmaster also helps so that guitar effects don't overtake the sound. If you have a really reedy piece of crap guitar, right? With like single coils, even if you had a good guitar, like a Telecaster, and you throw a flange on it or a chorus on it, the guitar effect, it's really going to do too much to the sound. You need to have heavy waveform continuity on the guitar signal to really benefit and use subtle guitar effects that work better in stereo space and don't overtake the song. Shortly after 17 seconds, Mike Hedges gives Robert or introduces him to the Fender Bass 6. One of the other aspects of touring the world, as you might expect, is that The Cure were introduced to drugs. They'd always been big drinkers. Robert was infamous for this. Uh, Niall Stevenson, who managed Susie and the Banshees, this guy, during the Sex Pistols' entire run, was in charge of making sure that Sid Vicious couldn't get heroin. But he was so incapable of this that he became a heroin junkie himself. And he was when he managed the Banshees. So think about the condition he's in when he makes the statement that Robert Smith would be the perfect guitarist for Susie and the Banshees if not for his enormous alcohol intake. 
And, you know, he was never known to be somebody who showed it. You know, you can go to anecdotes all throughout his career. The late Sean Hughes has a famous anecdote where he's talking about Robert Smith playing acoustic guitar to him on the beach at 4.30 in the morning drinking brandy. And Hughes is about to pass out and Robert's just, you know, strumming away. (laughs) By the time you get to Faith and after this world tour, the drinking and the drugs take a completely different turn. And it has a very negative impact on this record insofar as they failed to get the record going. They tried a bunch of different studios. Smith really didn't have any strong ideas apart from this double bass sound. That's really the lasting legacy of Faith. The title track has become, like a forest, one of the signature, drawn-out, meditative, long-form sort of 4-4 ambient guitar pieces in the Cure's catalog. There's a version that I think was recorded in Rome very famously and dedicated to the participants in the Tiananmen Square riots that reached like 26 minutes long or something. They were getting to the point where in the middle of the faith breakdown, he was playing the refrain from Love Will Tear Us Apart. I mean, it really went places that, you know, if you're trying to resist snide remarks that you're sort of the new Pink Floyd, this is not helping. Faith really cements all of the negative quips that critics had about The Cure. You know, Joy Division light. Smith could not have put a bigger target on his back than he did with Faith as far as, you know, critical response. The album didn't do very well either. Trying to do something so serious, so downcast in a lightweight kind of 4-4 pop construct is a tough sell. And the fact that the sources for Faith, I mean, it's not like C.S. Lewis and this is like a concept album about Narnia, but it's not far off. You know, Smith, unfortunately, his precocious sort of obstinance about wanting to do his own thing, it's not always supported by the strength of the songwriting. Smith is incapable of writing a decades or the eternal at 21. Once I can look at Robert Smith as the guy who wrote Plain Song and the title track Disintegration, that's a totally different person. The Robert Smith who wrote Faith could have been a friend of mine. And so that that's the big distinction with this record. It is relatively juvenile, but it is also beautiful. While The Cure were drinking and having a blast during 17 seconds, things get a little bit different here, Quaaludes. They got introduced to Quaaludes at a party on the 17 seconds tour. You know, look, you can't get them anymore, really. Don't take them. Don't do drugs. But Quaaludes are fucking incredible. (laughs) I had a sister who was a bit older than me, and in the 70s, taking half a Quaalude was a really fast way to get drunk. You'd have half a lewd and a couple of beers, and you were fucking legless. 
So if you're Chris Perry, you've got a precocious young songwriter who's trying to, you know, push you out of the process and doesn't want anyone to tell him what to do. You left them to their own devices predominantly for 17 seconds, and Smith managed to come up with a decent chart hit. He got on top of the pops with a forest, you know, clearly with Polydor and Chris Perry's help. Point is, it's a classic song. That doesn't happen with Faith. Faith was probably my favorite Cure album for a good portion of my teenage fandom with this band. Anybody who's like kind of a gothy Cure fan, All Cats Are Grey, it's just a signature anthem. All Cats Are Grey is kind of a song that shows that he's capable of what eventually comes together on Disintegration. It's still very basic and it and the drum pattern is, is very basic, but it's legitimately haunting. Uh, and so is The Drowning Man. If it weren't for the textual sort of debt to Gorman Gas that The Drowning Man carries, the sonics of it, which are easily indicted as, you know, rifling through Joy Division's luggage, are still incredibly beautiful. And the, the commitment in the vocal performance in The Drowning Man is so undeniable. I always love The Holy Hour. That's a great set opener. There's not much to the song. It's just, I mean, the fact that it has a church bell ringing in it is kind of brutal. But this song came back on the prayer tour in 89, and it was just note perfect right in there. I mean, obviously, most of Faith finds its mirror in Disintegration. When you hear them later with Boris Williams, it really changes the way these songs land. Certainly the Holy Hour was one that benefited from him and Faith uh, in those later presentations. Andy Anderson, who was in The Cure in 1984 during the recording of The Top, he was my favorite drummer for Primary. The Cure released a live album in 1984 called Concert. The version of Primary on that, whew, oh my God. You know, as you're exploring this record and you start to unpack the, you know, flange-laden, huge chorus, really wide envelope choruses, and the double bass attack, just this mud of, of treble crashing, you know, sub-bass thudding. Hearing Primary done with a really technically tight, almost studio-quality drummer like Andy Anderson, completely different experience. Primary doesn't do very well as a single. Not having any hits... You know, doing a couple of videos that don't go anywhere, primary and other voices, Perry doesn't have any options at this point. He wants to take the cure into the charts. And Robert Smith wants to write songs about how he doesn't believe in anything and the world seems pointless. Yeah, no, we're going in the studio and you're going to give me a single.
If your manager tells you to go give him the single and you almost recite a children's book, there's some context and subtext to that that, that may sort of indicate that Smith was kind of wincing his way through Charlotte sometimes. It definitely marked a breaking point with Mike Hedges in terms of the way he approached the drums, I think. It's a big problem with Faith. The kick drum is just way too loud. There's no wiggle room in terms of using the word gothic to talk about a Cure album. Faith is the goth album. And it's goth in that really obvious kind of renaissance fair medieval way. But it works. Why not look at Faith as the work of a 21-year-old kid in the process of working through what becoming a pop star means? Not every singer has the same tools, the same history, the same inspirations, the same backgrounds. Should Robert Smith have to apologize for the fact that his albums maybe aren't informed by necessarily the same kind of drama that we imbue and sow into all of our dead, overdose, suicide heroes? That, to me, is far more dangerous than, than cheap goth insults or, or being dismissive of Robert Smith as, you know, a middle-class kid whining. I'm far more bothered when critics are suggesting that the only legitimate musicians are the ones that fucking kill themselves. It's been a constant problem in discussions of pop and rock music, and the reason I bring it up is because Robert Smith is walking around with all of this in his head at 21. He's being portrayed as the next Ian Curtis. And it's the same old death cult that's fueled everything. So, I mean, this is front of mind for him. And it's something that like, a you know, just somebody who's a Cure fan maybe isn't going to understand is how gross the critics were in this period in the post-punk landscape. First, it was the preciousness of the critics and deciding who was and wasn't authentic, authentically punk or authentically allowed to carry the torch of punk into dub or whatever. Smith made a totally uncommercial album in Faith, yet he still had the resources to go tour. He was still getting set up for interviews. He was able to put together a statement in Faith that he believed in and that represented, you know, his emotional state at the time. And he didn't have to apologize for it. And a major label still carried him. They didn't get dropped from Polydor. Perry continued to fight for them. There are a lot of people who protected him, you know, in this early phase until the hits started coming. And I'm not sure whether or not, you know, maybe in his later years, he recognizes that, but he really does seem to have been pretty ungrateful. And the fact that he got away with it by then becoming a total hit factory on his own terms. There's a side to Robert Smith that is kind of monstrous in that respect. <laughs> and not a lot of people are going to see it, but certainly a lot of the former members of The Cure would tell you that for all these reasons, Smith has existed in such a bubble for so long. I once read that you were called the Pink Floyd of the 80s. What do you think of that? Shit. <laughs> uh, we're not at all. We're the, the Cure of the 80s, not Pink Floyd. But can you understand why people say things like that? Because I've got no imagination, probably. No imagination? Well, anyone that draws comparisons with anything else has got a lack of imagination because they have to put things into categories and it's not necessary. I mean, why bother to call us the Pink Floyd of the 80s when all you've got to do is listen to the record and make up your own mind? It's difficult to conceive of what this record would sound like if you'd never heard it and put it on in 2021. I, I would guess that the song that most resonates with people would be The Funeral Party.
the atmospherics and the, and the kind of manufactured cathedral of sound that they get out of multi-tracking the Roland RS-09. And very few artists have gone for it in terms of a synth wall of sound in the way that The Cure does with The Funeral Party. You know, if two years earlier you'd heard Boys Don't Cry and it, it was one of your favorite songs, maybe you even thought A Forest was cool. And then you go see this show and you're subjected to 30 minutes of double bass atmospherics and synthesizers. It does not seem like an enjoyable concert experience. It seems like a church service. Later on, as the cure get bigger and start playing European amphitheaters, etc., you hear the crowd, like, you know, go listen to or watch The Cure's In Orange or, or find a clip of Play for Today from In Orange in 86. You hear the whole stadium chanting like they're at a football pitch. The keyboard line from Play for Today. Around about the time The Cure's look and everything came together in 1985 with the head on the door, the whole attitude of their fan base changed. It, it sort of resolved itself. He'd gone through this crazy psychedelic pop period and done all this crap. He was in Susie and the Banshees and then sort of The Cure, as it had been known and embraced by so many fans, sort of reconstitutes itself in 1985. And when these old songs came back and they were played with much more sophistication and tightness and clarity, you, know, you get a five-person band now, they took on a whole new dimension in concert. It really creates this different dynamic where fans all of a sudden love them in an energetic way. Like they rock. And, and it's just something that's not there yet when they're written and when they're originally laid to tape for these albums. So many of these songs are difficult. The, the sonics are totally extreme, particularly with pornography. But later on, you know, when I talk about Robert Smith as a songwriter and having that background as a songwriter, the melodies are totally eternal. One of the signature examples of this is Charlotte Sometimes, the forced attempt at a radio single with the horrible, I talk about a Hammer horror film, the pathetic video filmed at a mental institution with some BBC actress running around making bug-eyed faces, running from ghosts. I mean, it's so funny. It's just awful. And the production, as I say, the snare drum is clipping. It's just, it's a mess. All these songs, for all their failings and their weird quirks and their terrible production, they all have a sonic place in your emotional makeup as a Cure fan. Like, there was a period, there was a time when you first heard Faith or you first heard Charlotte Sometimes. Or there was a period or a winter or something when suddenly Charlotte Sometimes sounded perfect to you. It, it's one of those bands where because the catalog is so massive and they've endured for so long, people's experiences, their emotional development is sort of staked to a lot of these songs. Almost no bands ever achieve that.
Even though I'm trying to keep some critical distance from faith, faith was absolutely enormous for me in my melodramatic, self-pitying 15-year-old headspace of, you know, first girlfriends, of breakups, of all this stuff, thinking that religion is bullshit, man. And Smith is somebody who's always said, you know, I never forgot what that felt like. I always wanted to write from that perspective. This is the sum total of Robert Smith's life experience to the point of being 21. And yeah, some of it is very obvious and far ahead of his years in terms of moaning about the world. But that's how you feel when you're a kid. Everything is very serious. Everything feels so much bigger, so much heavier. There's so much more heartache and longing. There's so much more mystery still. Things you don't know, things you don't have to know. And I think that that's sort of the beauty of faith. While it doesn't speak to a justifiable, informed world weariness, it's still nonetheless totally authentic. It doesn't apologize for being 21.